Good morning. We are moving into the home stretch on a series that we've been looking at First Peter. And this morning, come to a place where we address the idea, the concept of suffering. Um, when, because we make room for God, and the fact that you're here would lead me to believe that you do so. It means that when you face suffering and hardships, you have to ask some questions, some questions that not everybody asks. Um, you factor God into the equation, and then questions naturally arise. What does this suffering mean? Have I displeased him? Is this suffering a sign of his disfavor or his anger? Peter deals directly head-on with the idea of suffering in his letter. Look what he says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. We'll hit the first part, and then we'll hit the second part a little bit later. He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Peter makes two points about suffering in the life of a Christian. He encourages us to accept it, but he also encourages us to resist the shame that attends it. First of all, he tells us to accept it. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter makes the claim that suffering, even unjust suffering, is to be expected. And again, this thought runs counter to the way we react when we experience suffering. Um, we see suffering as an abnormal state of affairs, something that we have to get around and get through to the other side of normal life in which there is no suffering. And if these sufferings can't be avoided, what we try to do is to try to learn the lesson and quickly so that God can get us around the suffering and he'll take the goons away. Oh, you know, so what we end up saying, oh, I know what you were trying to teach me. Oh, oh that's, boy, that was one heck of a lesson. And now I, I think I see it. And so you can call the goons off these circumstances that you've sent to teach me this lesson because I've really got it. And we try to get around it. We try to get past to the place where we're back to normal life. The fact is, it's hard for us to get our arms around the idea of suffering, especially unjust suffering. I think a couple of reasons why. First, the times have changed. Um, our society, and for many centuries, has been shaped by Judeo-Christian values. You don't need to be a believer to be guided by those values. And so, in many cases, and to, and to some extent, the values of Christians and the values of unbelievers are different, but not as different as they were in Peter's day. 
We still have the same Judeo-Christian code of ethics. Um, from the time of Constantine to rather recently, Christianity became the state religion of Rome. And because of that fact, it was socially acceptable to espouse Christian values. Um, Peter was speaking at a time, though, when the values and the resulting way of life marked diff- markedly were markedly different. He Right, he wrote before Constantine came on the scene, where it was a very pagan society. And therefore, it's, I think, might be difficult for us to really relate to the suffering that Peter's readers, his Christian readers, are experiencing, because their belief really put them at odds with culture. And that's something that we in our country can't really get our arms around. We maybe could if we lived in Iran or Iraq or an Islamic country. That might be a a better uh, comparison. Second thing, uh, not only because the times have changed, because even biblically the fortunes of the blessed have changed. We run into a, a, a a change in the Bible. There's a real difference between B.C. and A.D. blessing. And what Peter says, if you are insulted, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Blessing in the early books of the Bible means protection and provision. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy. Um, one of the first five books of the Bible says, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you? And it's going to talk about what it means for them to be blessed. It says, Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword, your enemies will cower before you. And so blessedness is associated with provision and protection. A thousand years and two captivities later, in the last book of the Bible, here's what some of those who live within Judaism are saying. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine. Then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. What they would, what happened at the end of the Old Testament, the indication is, God, you know, we're really trying. We're really trying to live a righteous life. And you're not making a, distinguish, a distinction between those who serve you and those who don't. In fact, those who don't serve you have a better life. And we have tried to serve you, and not only do we not get ahead, but we get behind. And so, in that sense, they had come to a place of, they were saying, not blessed are those who serve God, blessed are the arrogant. Very cynically, that's where it came to. And then when Jesus arrives on the scene, he goes one step further, and he actually links blessedness to suffering. Very well-known Passage in scripture, here's what he says. Who are the blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called sons of God. And this is the way he ends it. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you. Persecute you. And say all kinds of evil against you. Because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you agree with me? From Deuteronomy, where provision and protection to Malachi, no distinction to what Jesus says, there is a quantum shift in blessedness in the Bible. A quantum shift. It moves from B.C. blessedness, where earthly blessings eclipse heavenly ones, where if you're blessed, you'll be able to see it in land, seed, and blessing. Earthly blessing eclipse heavenly blessing. The Old Testament doesn't have a bunch about eternity. And then A.D. blessing completely shifts that. And heavenly blessings eclipse earthly ones. We're going to get it then. We don't get it now. In fact, we get persecutions now. Those who suffer for Christ, Peter says, are blessed. The blessedness, when Peter talks about it, it's not really, and the Bible talks about there are some things that God teaches us in times of hardship. But in Peter's sense, that's not what he's focusing on. He says there is blessedness in being persecuted because that is, in his thinking, linked with the presence of God. He says that the... uh, The spirit of glory and God rests upon them. Their current suffering is, as Christ was, part of the picture and glory is to follow. Peter's point is this. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon the believer who suffers rather than sins. And the fact that these individuals were suffering indicates that they continued to walk with Christ even though it put them in a place where they were being persecuted and insulted. Not physically at this point, but they certainly weren't being allowed to get ahead. Peter does introduce a qualification. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Uh, the first three terms, murderer, thief, and evildoer, Peter expects all would agree are wrong. You know, again, uh, if you're going to be persecuted, but you're persecuted as a murderer, that's you're not going to get a bunch on the far side because it's wrong to be a murderer. And it's wrong to be a thief, and it's wrong to be an evildoer. And everybody that hears this, is going to say, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. But then he says there is also no glory or honor in suffering that results from being inappropriately involved in another person's affairs. Being a meddler. Uh, A meddler is an overseer 
of other people's matters, something that belongs to somebody else, and you oversee something that is really not your business to oversee, or an inspector into other men's matters. And what it might be talking about here are individuals who are censuring the behaviors of outsiders on the basis of a higher morality. They're judging other people that aren't within their particular frame of faith, or they are interfering with family relationships, or they are employing tactless attempts at conversion and and are kind of just being irritating. A meddler. Who are these meddlers? It's interesting that they all get lumped together. You know what I think is going on here, to tell you the truth? I think that it could well be that these individuals, Peter writes, are Jewish Christians, and we know that 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. Now, I'm going to say something about Jews. This is not a slam on Jews, time eternal, but at this time, there was Judaism existed, and Christianity kind of broke out of Judaism. All the initial leaders of Christianity were Jews. And that's where it started. And progressively, Christianity went this way, but it didn't split cleanly. And Jews then would be looking at the suffering of these Jewish Christians, and what they would probably do is urge them to come back within Judaism. They said, you know, all you have to do is keep the commandments. And you had those in Judaism. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Honor the Ten Commandments, and if you honor the Ten Commandments, everything will be fine. Peter adds a twelfth commandment. Do not meddle. And I think what he's doing, he's sending a shot across the bow of these Jews who are interfering with Jewish Christians. And basically what Peter is saying to them, mind your own business. This is not your fight. These are not people that you have a right to speak into. These are Christians, and it's different from where your faith is rooted. Uh, the Bible has a number of 12th commandment, mind your own business passages. It does. And again, when we try to figure out, what does it mean not to meddle? Here's what he says. James writes, and James writes to the same type of people, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and destroy. Then he asked a question. It's an interesting question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? That's a question. Tough question, isn't it? Who are you to judge your neighbor? And what Peter writes, at some point, there are individuals who are being religious, who are really being meddlers. Again, I'm not going to tack this down with any specificity, but it's, a, it's an interesting charge, especially because of where Peter adds it. And he's taking, he's really taking a shot at this. Um, but 
again, there comes times where mind your own business is appropriate, but there's times when mind your own business is not appropriate. The parable of the good, the, the good Samaritan, it's the individuals who walked by on the other side of the road who minded their own business. And it was the Samaritan that didn't mind his own business. He saw somebody suffering and he pulled aside. When do you, when do you get involved in people's matters and when don't you? It's interesting when somebody is in need of physical support. And that's what the early church really made a point. If somebody is suffering, they're in need of food or clothes or things like that. That's what it means to love your brother as yourself. How do we express love to ourselves? We don't kiss ourselves and we don't pat ourselves on the back. What we do, we clothe ourselves and we feed ourselves and we put ourselves in positions where we can have what we need that will allow us to continue to do the things that we would want to do. What does it mean to love your neighbor? It might not mean to meddle in his affairs. It would mean that if he's in a place where he is in need and you are able to meet that need, that's the way love is to be expressed. Love in the Bible is very practical. Uh, Peter tells his reader that God is glorified when you suffer for bearing the name of Christ. He says that doesn't count for suffering for being a Christian murderer or a Christian thief or a Christian evildoer or a Christian meddler. Um, he's talked about accept suffering, but then he also says resist shame. Well, let's pick up the last part of that passage. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator. It talks about it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. You say, oh, wait, oh, I thought there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, judgment can be one of two things. The word judgment can be, can be about condemnation and the penalty or punishment that follows. And it says judgment, if it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, does that mean that God is judging? I, I don't think so because these individuals that Peter is writing to, the problem is not that they are doing right. The fact is they are doing right. They are doing good. They are trying to do what God would have them to do. And they're suffering unjustly. And that's being described by Peter as judgment. Would you agree? Clearly, it's not because they're messing up. The fact is they're not messing up. But there's still judgment. See, judgment, there's two things that judgment can mean. It can mean condemnation or punishment. But it can also mean just the actions of a judge. Just what a judge does. It doesn't imply condemnation. And if that's the sense, then it's just describing how God administers justice. He begins with his children. They experience suffering, and we'll talk about why. It's not because they're doing something wrong. It's because they're doing something right. And those who walk with God find themselves in places 
where they will be treated unjustly. And that is a form of God judgment, but not penalty, not punishment. And Peter's point, if God exposes, and I think this, it's not just allows suffering. I think God exposes his children to suffering. It's not that he just kind of steps back and let matters take their course. Would you agree? I think it's a little bit stronger. God exposes his children to suffering. And if he does so, when he brings justice, and if his children suffer, then what about those who don't believe? I think that's Peter's point. Um, One day God will switch the price tags, as it says in Malachi. Then once more, you will see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And that's what ends up happening at the end of the Bible. With those who looked and they were trying their best to live the kind of life God would want them to live, but what they find they were getting behind. And then what ends up happening in that letter, those who feared the Lord talked to one another, and and God heard them, and what he told them is this. There is coming a day when God will switch the price tags. Things that are devalued now will be valued then. Things that are valued now will be devalued then. And those who attempted, not perfect, but to walk with God, God will balance the scales. It does, and Peter's point is, hang in there. Stay the course. Stay the course. You say, but staying the course, it exposes me. Stay the course. Eternity is a long time. If you want to look at a psalm, a great psalm, Psalm 73, it's this psalmist is looking at his life and the life of those who don't follow God, and he says it doesn't add up. And this guy, the more he looks at the evidence, the more irritated he becomes. And then he says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. The more he tried to understand it, the more grievous it was. And then here's what he did. He entered the Lord's presence, and here's what God did to him. This guy was looking at life through a narrow angle lens. And he was looking at his behavior and his circumstances, and it just didn't make sense. Look at that. There's a person who's doing that, and and they get away with it. And there's a person who's doing all these good things. They don't get away with it. And what what God ends up doing in the psalm is he said, let me take that lens. Took this lens away. And then what he gave him? Is a wide-angle lens. Now look. And what he was shown, oh, God, you don't look at what's happening now. You look at what's happening a thousand years from now. And looking at life for a wide-angle lens, he was able to say, oh, I see how this works. It seems like those who get ahead do so, but eternity is a long time, and I'm going to be with you forever. That's what he ends up seeing. Uh, But the question is, and here's what Peter points all this out for, will his readers have the resolve and the stamina to persevere till the end? 
And they hang in there until God balances the scales. Or will the insult and the abuse and the ostracism and even more threatening things drive them to deny Christ, renounce their faith, and return to pagan beliefs and living? In this sense, Christians have to hang in there. Christians have to hang in there. We don't get our best life now. That's not true. Our best life comes on the far side of eternity. So if God allows his children to suffer horizontal persecution and hostility, here's a question. If we're going to experience horizontal headaches, what's the right vertical response? How are we supposed to deal with this? How are we supposed to deal with these pressures and and deal with God at the same time. What Peter says is this, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, here's the thing to do. Let him not be ashamed. Accept suffering. Resist shame. There was shame. Here's what shame is. I read a definition once. I like the definition. Shame exposes one to the ridicule of society. Shame exposes one to the ridicule of society. Here's what shame looks like. Derision. Contempt. This is, this is what shame looks like. It's when somebody looks at you this way. Shame exposes one to the ridicule of society, by the way from which we seek to protect ourselves from being ashamed. There's shame. Shame looks like this. You know what ashamed looks like? Like this. And why, why, when we're ashamed, do we do this? Why do we do this? You know why? Because we don't want to face this. We know the way they're thinking. And so what we're going to do is shame is painful, difficult to resist. How do we resist shame? That's what's happening in those days. People were, if not being outright persecuted, looked at this way. How do we resist shame? You can follow somebody's example. Here's what, look at what it says in Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, look what it says, despising the shame. You know what despise means? It means, I'm not going to accept that. It means to think against it. So what Jesus did, he accepted suffering, but when somebody put a beam of contempt and shame toward him, he found a way to go, "Mm." 
So he accepted the suffering but resists the shame. And he says that because those who claimed, those who spoke against Jesus claimed to speak for God. And so what, what Jesus did, he understood what was happening. He said, okay, I know that there's some shame coming at me, but here's what I do know. You do not reflect the face of my Father. And in that way, he resisted the shame. And he says, you know what? And it registered with him, but it didn't register as much as the face of the Father registered. And that's what Jesus focused on. What was the Father thinking? How did the Father look? How is the Father looking at you? Some of you do at some point. You do believe he's doing this. Look at you. Resist that picture. That is not your father. That is not him. Now, naturally, I'm talking about Heavenly Father. Some of us grew with, you know, we don't have earthly parents who are perfect examples. What about your Heavenly Father? How does he look at you? You say, well, Mike, you know, I do things that he doesn't approve of. I get that. Here's what it says in the New Covenant. I want you to listen to me. It says, and we, we talk about this word, the New Covenant says he will forgive our wickedness. Literally what that means, God is helios to our unrighteousnesses. Helios means cheerful, gracious, benevolent, favorable. What it means, God is helios to your unrighteousnesses. Now, again, this is hard to believe, but it's what the new covenant is. God looks at you, and his face is accepting, non-reactive. You do something wrong. You look at that website. You treat that person that way. You do that thing. You know the thing I'm talking about. You know the thing. And you imagine that God's face changes. His face does not change. He is helios to your unrighteousnesses. He is gracious, favorable, benevolent, cheerful. After you do that thing, you say, wait a minute, Mike. I'm going to ask you a question. What would happen if you believed that? What would happen if you believed that, that God's face didn't change? You know what you wouldn't do? You know what you'd do when you looked at God? You wouldn't go like this. Some of you had a very difficult time looking at him because you're afraid that you're going to get shamed. You never need to be ashamed with him. Jesus understands too completely. When we enter God's presence, he ends up helping us deal with these things. Our God is helios to our unrighteousnesses, and he remembers our sins no more. How did Jesus deal with shame? He didn't say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. So I'm like, I'm like, I'm, geez, you know, I'm a likable guy, and you know, he had a mirror around with him. It's not what he did. Um, it says what he says. 
And I want you to look at it. It says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That word for, I think it's mistranslated. The word really in Greek is anti. Anti is not for, it's against. You know, like antipathy, it's being against something. And so what it says, I don't think it's supposed to be who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You know what I think it's supposed to say? Instead of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What do you mean? See, Jesus knew that he was going to return to the Father, and he wanted to do that. But if he doesn't endure the cross, he goes back to the Father, but he goes alone. He goes alone. If he endures the cross, who gets to go with him? So you know what he does? Rather than thinking of the joy set before him, he steals his face. And he says, instead of the joy, I'm going to endure the cross because I'm not here just on a round trip. I am here to come to make sure that others get to come with me as well. So I'm going to hang in there. And I'm going to despise the shame. And people are going to look at me and they're going to go, and I'm going to know, you might, you might think my father has rejected me. You have no idea what my father's doing. I'm not just here for me. I'm here for those who will believe in me because they are my brothers and my sisters and I can't wait for them to meet my father. I can't wait. And yeah, I can hang in there because the price will be worth it. You know why we get exposed to difficulties? It's not just for us. It's just so that we can... Sorry, I'm yelling, John. <laughs> I really don't think it's just us. It's, it's what he does through us. And that's what Peter writes. You know what ended up happening to these people? This place in Asia Minor became the central center of Christianity. You know why? Because God knows what he's doing. They, they persevered. Um, Jesus understood this uh, on this basis he resisted the shame Paul understood it as well here's what he said Paul writes in 2 Corinthians we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God not to us what Paul describes is what it means to be a carrier of the Christian message and here's what he says we are Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Um, What do we do when we're exposed to suffering? Entrust ourselves to God's will. Entrust our soul to a faithful creator while doing good. It's harder to do good when you're suffering. It seems like, why should I? It's not going to lead anywhere. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Hebrews. God is not unjust. 
God is not unjust. Hebrews 6, 9, and 10. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown toward his name in having ministered to and in still ministering to the saints. I want you to listen to this. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown toward his name in having ministered to and in still ministering to the saints. I want you to listen to me. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. When we do good in his name, God remembers. God remembers. Um, Therefore, don't let persecution or suffering deflect you from your calling in Christ because they're a part of this calling. How do you do this? I'm going to be very practical. How do you do that when you're getting this? Um, Lean into Jesus' sympathy in order to find the strength to do good. Lean into Jesus' sympathy. Here's what it says in the last verse. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Do you know what shame is about again? Shame is about disdain and derision. Um, glory is when somebody's face lights up. Shame is their face darkens. Um, what does a person need who is being exposed to the threat of ridicule? What do they need? If you were to choose a solution, you're, you're afraid of what you're going to experience. What would be the solution to that? Um, you know what I'm going to suggest? If, if you're ashamed and you're doing this because you're afraid of the face you're going to see, you know what would solve that? If you were aware that the face that you were going to see is not doing this, but is doing this. It's not very difficult to be open and vulnerable with someone who sympathizes with you. Not only is there an absence of contempt, but the presence of compassion. And when the presence of compassion is there, it has a magical power to turn this into this. We, we hunger for that. In fact, you know what I think is behind meddling? Because we desperately want to be included. And we don't want to be excluded. And sometimes we rush into people's lives because we, we want to guard against being excluded and we, and we want to be included. And, and you know what the way Jesus does, deals with that? 
He says, I understand contempt. So if you're going to experience contempt, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like for you, and I want you to think about this. I want you to try to envision Jesus. J.C. did a picture of him. I'm not sure if you need to see what he looks like, but I want you to see the expression on his face. When he looks at you, what do compassionate eyes look like, sympathetic eyes? You might not know what they look like, but you do know what they feel like, don't you? Sympathetic eyes. They make you relax. They open you up. Jesus sympathizes with you. You're saying, why do I need to know that, Mike? Because of all the shame you experience. That's why. You don't have the luxury of not tapping into Jesus' sympathy. You need it. Sometimes we feel like, no, I can go it on my own. No, you can't. Not and love as deeply as God would have you to love. You can't do it on your own. What do I need, Mike? You need sympathy. Not just from people. From the Son of God Himself. Sympathy. What would happen if you drank that in? What would happen if you drank that in? You know what would happen? It talks about the fact that in order to receive mercy and grace, we have to speak freely to the Father. It's hard to speak freely to the Father, isn't it? Going to the throne of grace saying, I feel really weak. I, I don't like this. You know what helps you to go into the presence of the Father? A sympathetic son. You don't walk into the presence of the Father alone. You walk in with him. You know, some of you, you said, I didn't know that. Ah, what happened if you make room for that? Jesus meets you where you are. He meets you where you are. And you know what he says? I understand the way it feels. Let's go into the presence of the Father together. I get it. I understand how it feels. Let's go there together. You think that's going to help him to go to the Father? Sympathy always helps. Let's go to the Father. I understand how it hurts. And I came so that I could understand. That's why Jesus came to sympathize. He knows what it's like to face contempt. And he says, I care about you. Let's go talk to the Father together. And when you believe that, there's something that happens. You end up finding a way to speak freely, to open your heart out to him. Say, Mike, it's hard for me to open my heart to the Father. Here's what I'm going to tell you to do. And come on up. We're going to make room. Make room for the sympathy of the Son. We pray for us. Father, thank you for the throne of grace where you receive mercy and find grace to help. You tell us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. It means speaking freely. Not just that we come there, but we come there when we speak freely when we're there. That's a big order. 
you also tell us Jesus sympathizes with our weakness, and that can move us into the throne of grace. We face things that aren't pleasant, but we don't have to face them alone. We have a sympathetic son and a sovereign father, and I'd ask that you would help us to connect with you. In Jesus' name, amen.